This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is... What are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? What are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? This week's winner gets a book we featured on the show last week, Eli Meyerhoff's Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Now I realize this was last week's question from hell, and we are just wrapping up last week's question from hell because our Wednesday show was canceled on Thanksgiving Eve with a last-minute cancellation by a guest because of logistical reasons. So we're wrapping up last week's question from hell now, and we will be announcing a new question from hell tomorrow. We'll also have more of your answers later on this morning's show when we announce this week's winner. Alex, how are listeners answering the question from hell so far? John M. says, virtual reality. <laughs> Kaylin R. says, sustainable denialism. <laughs> uh, KHM says, monorail salesperson. And Joanne C. says, beer with a minor in scotch. <laughs> Keep listening to hear all of our listeners' responses and tune in later on this morning's show to find out if you've won Eli Meyerhoff's book, Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex, how was your Thanksgiving? That was not bad. And then uh, yesterday I stepped into the Chicago newsstand. You know that place on uh, Maine in Chicago? In I Evanston? love that place. I, love I uh, that place. walked in there because I was in the middle of a rainstorm, so I had to escape. So I uh, walked in there and I perused uh, the objective standard a libertarian journal. How was it? I walked back into the rain. <laughs> That's actually a great place to uh, find uh, determine potential guests for the show. Just go over to the magazine rack and find what uh, weird publications that you wouldn't have spotted in the past and just find some weird guests in there. I love Chicago Newsstand over on uh, Maine and Clark. Chicago. Chicago. I mean, I think they always change the names as they come go across the Evanston border from Chicago for whatever reason. Evanston changes the names of all of the streets. As soon as they hit the uh, border of Chicago, you know, Chicago streets are Clark, and all of a sudden it turns into Chicago. Even though there's another Clark and another... It's always very confusing once you cross the border, and Alex knows that because he unfortunately lives in Evanstonia. I'll tell you about my Thanksgiving in a few moments, but first, today... On This Is Hell, there was a time when everyone universally believed race, sex, and nationality determined who you are. And it wasn't that long ago. Un- unbelievably, <laughs> unbelievably, it was less than a century ago. Then an anthropologist came along named Franz Boas. Boas sent his students into the field, which was something anthropologists did not do at the time. Instead, since the field of study began in the 16th century, they would merely pontificate from afar making generalizations about the world they did not study and asserting them with authority. When Boaz's students did actually do field work, they discovered that race, sex, and nationality did not determine who we are, and in fact, race is a fiction, which was revolutionary for the time. We'll find out how we discovered we are all the same when we talk to the award-winning writer Charles King, author of Gods of the Upper Air, how a circle of renegade anthropologists reinvented race, sex, and gender in the 20th century. Later this week on This Is Hell, we will be speaking with award-winning author and 
media analyst Ann Nelson, who's the author of the new book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Since 2003, Ann has been teaching at Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, where her classes and research explore how digital media can support the underserved populations of the world through public health, education, and culture. You can follow Ann on Twitter at A-N-E-L-S-O-N-A. That's A Nelson A. And you can find out more about Anne at her website, Anne A N N E Nelson.com. We are still waiting to confirm with our final guest this week. Of course, we'll end this week's show as we do most shows, and that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell, brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is smoothies. In a May article written by Gwendolyn Smith at The Guardian headlined, Pickle Juice and Marmite, the 11 Best Hangover Cures by Pub Landlords, and we promise this will be the last time we cite this article, Smith quotes James Billington, bar manager at the Talbot in Malton, North Yorkshire, saying, even though it may take a huge amount of willpower to make a smoothie, <laughs> not going to that bar then, it only takes moments. Billington combines one teaspoon of honey, one banana, 10 leaves of spinach, 125 milliliters of orange juice, a scoop of ice, a couple tablespoons of yogurt, and then a dash of passion fruit juice. However, if you're confident in your ability to hold down solids, Billington says, it's scotch pancakes and banana all the way. You know what a scotch pancake is? No. That makes this week's hangover cure smoothies, or if you can handle solids, scotch pancakes and banana. I assume it's not like a scotch egg. I would assume it's just scotch, right? You're just putting scotch in your pancakes. That's really... I'm trying to say which one of those is worse. <laughs> uh, actually, smoothies do work really well, but spinach leaves in your smoothie... Smoothies work really, really well on my Sunday morning hangover. When I do have a Sunday morning hangover, and I have a smoothie every Sunday. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. The hospital where my family doctor has an office is the last independent hospital in the state of Illinois. Or at least it was. That is, until it was bought up by a huge healthcare provider. My doctor had been warning me about this ever since Obamacare passed 10 years ago. He believed at the time that the market-based solution would benefit huge healthcare providers, that the only way it would ever get passed is if it benefited big healthcare. The last independent hospital could no longer compete with big conglomerates as Obamacare rewards larger healthcare operations with more Medicaid reimbursements per patient and smaller independent hospitals. Yes, Obamacare helps capitalism do what it inevitably does, and that is eliminate competition, become an oligopoly, if not a monopoly, rewarding big money and punishing smaller outfits. I know, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Thanksgiving? Be patient. Which means the bigger healthcare provider swooped in, cut salaries, which led to a huge turnover in my doctor's staff. And the last time I went, I didn't recognize anyone but my doctor's assistant. It also meant new protocols, including an interview by someone who I'd also never met before. She came in with a tablet, not the medical kind, but the type of computer, and started asking questions. They were all basic and simple and seemed typical for getting a medical history, but they already had my history on file as I've been seeing this doctor for like 15 years. After she asked if I was married and I explained I was not, but that I'd been living with the same person for 32 years, she followed with a really weird question. How often do you see your family? 
I got really confused, wondering, does she not consider the person who I've been living with for decades family? Because we don't believe in marriage, we believe in monogamy, and everything you think of marriage is just that we don't think we need a church or a government or a license to tell or determine the parameters of our relationship legally. Does she think that that makes it she's not family because we've been together for 32 years, but we don't have that license? And I don't want to get that license because my credit rating is horrible, so why drag her down with me? So... I told the interview that we, me and my girlfriend of 32 years, who've been living together, had just spent 10 days with family during our annual family vacation in August. We do that every year with my family. In September, we had gone to my girlfriend's mom's 80th birthday party, and we saw a lot of family there. We had just traveled five and a half hours to Michigan to see my brother as his granddaughter was performing in a play only a couple weeks before this doctor's appointment. A week before my doctor's appointment, we had my sister visit for an entire weekend. It was like four days. The interviewer then said... I'm sorry. Your choices are never, once a week, twice a week, or more. Despite spending nearly three solid weeks with family members over a two-month period, that wasn't enough for the new healthcare provider who had bought up the last independent hospital in Illinois. So she told me, I'm going to have to put down never. This past weekend, we had family over for Thanksgiving. My girlfriend's mom was there, so was my girlfriend's aunt, as was my brother, his daughter, her husband, and their two kids. This means over the last three months, we've spent nearly four weeks with family. But according to my new healthcare provider, I never see my family. The interviewer told me a lot of patients had complained about the question, but she had no choice to ask in the way that she was told to ask because that's what her employer told her to do. Apparently, they believe the more you see your family, the greater the likelihood is that you are in good shape health-wise. But here's the thing. Every time after I'm with my family, I'm exhausted. And during it, too. And I'll be seeing them for another 10 days this month despite never seeing them according to my new healthcare provider. We usually see family during the holidays or on summer vacation and the continuous socializing, the constant togetherness and the preparation as we await for their arrival or packing to go travel. And then when they show up, the work needed to entertain from making meals to finding fun things to do. And for me, constantly washing dishes, taking out the trash and doing all my regular weekly chores on top of all that. And then when they leave the cleanup afterwards, it's freaking exhausting. Or if we travel, the travel back and the unpacking. It's so tiring. Doing eight loads of laundry over the last four days wouldn't be so bad if the laundry wasn't in the basement and we didn't live on the top of a floor of a three-flat. Exactly how is seeing family supposed to be good for my health? I just had a four-day break, and what I need now is a four-day break from having a four-day break. I don't know what's going to happen with my family doctor. I don't know how much longer he's going to be my family doctor. And frankly, he admitted to me he doesn't know either. But I do know that if my new healthcare provider is determining how healthy I am based on how many times I see my family, and the more times I see family, the better off I am, 
Then for me, this is hell. Coming up this week, how race became a fiction, media, money, and the secret hub of the radical right. And we'll wrap up this week's show with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. There was a time when everybody knew, they knew race, ethnicity, and gender determined everything about who you are. And frighteningly, it wasn't that long ago, here to guide us through how what everyone believed turned out to be a fiction award-winning writer. Charles King is author of Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. Welcome to This Is Hell, Charles. So nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for being on our show. You can follow Charles on Twitter at CharlesKingDC, and you can find out more about Charles at CharlesKingAuthor.com. There's a very, very happy and uplifting quote at the beginning of your book from 1948 and attributed to the physicist Max Planck saying, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. That's a very happy opening quote. Uh, Do old ideas have to die off? And if seeing the light doesn't change our minds, what does that say about us? What does it say about us that we don't change our minds until, well, that generation just dies off? Well, I think it says that uh, that we are uh, prisoners in a way to um, a set of visions of the world, concepts that we bring into the world, boxes and categories that we use to make sense of the world. And every society of which we have knowledge has its own unique boxes, concepts, obsessions. In fact, really, in a way, its own sense of common sense. And Gods of the Upper Air, my book, is is the story of how, at least in the United States, and, and to a degree around the world, we began to have a different conception of what common sense is, particularly around these deep-seated ideas like race and gender, sexuality, ethnicity. You write about the anthropologist Franz Boas, who lived from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century. He was the chair of the Department of Anthropology at Columbia University, and he challenged the firmly held belief that nearly everybody had only a century ago, and that is race, sex, and nationality, determined who you are. Boas even argued race is a fiction, which was revolutionary for the time. And this is before any of his students had done any field work. Why did Boas have such a departure from what was universally known what did why did he believe that race uh, was a fiction that nationality and sex and race didn't determine who we are without having done the field work necessary to prove it yet well boaz was one of those figures who comes along rarely who is able to see more clearly think more broadly um, than the rest of us he had uh, grown up in germany immigrated to the united states in the 1880s, and just before he immigrated, he had begun his um, own kind of amateurish uh, field work. We would now call it anthropological field work, even though that that word really wasn't around at the time. He had uh, done a degree in physics, 
but really wanted to be a world explorer and go around the world and have adventures. And he spent um, nearly two years living on Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, um, along with uh, a guide and assistant of his, um, recording local languages, uh, hunting with local Inuit populations, um, making maps of the region. And over that period of time, he had something of a, of a transformation. He came to understand that in, in, in his home environment in Germany, the graduate of some of the country's best research universities, he was highly educated. He knew how to make him, his way in the world. He was part, in a way, of the country's intellectual elite. But on Baffin Island, he was a child. He was stupid. He, uh, he couldn't speak properly. He didn't know what would uh, help him survive in the winter. He didn't even know how to um, you know, harness a, a dog team. I mean, these basic, basic things that any full, educated human being in that environment would take as, as a given, as common sense. And that began for Boaz this process of beginning to rethink um, the obvious, rethink what common sense actually meant. And he would eventually take that insight and, and wrap it into his scientific understanding of race and, and lots of other things that obsess this new society that he came into in the 1880s, the United States. And your book uh, writes, uh, you, t you write about in your book, one of his students, uh, Margaret Mead, you write of Mead. It didn't take long for her to conclude that when she went to Samoa, she seemed to have a few rebellious adolescents when she was doing her field work. But that was largely because there was little for them to rebel against. Sexual norms were fluid. Virginity was celebrated in theory, but underprized in practice. Strict fidelity in relationships was foreign. Samoan ways, Mead reported, were not so much primitive and backward as intense. Intensely modern. So prior to Mead and prior to Boaz doing the work in the Baffin Island area, was not doing field work an intentional way to uphold what were commonly held beliefs as to, in this case, acting primitively or who was being modern? Were they simply coming up with these concepts without any field work to back up what their cultural beliefs were? Well, that's right in a way. I mean, certainly there were adventurers and travelers who had gone around the world for centuries, carting back, you know, artifacts and objects and pieces of art and so forth to fill up uh, museums in Western Europe, the United States, and, and, and elsewhere. But when uh, travelers and adventurers went around the world, they carried with them a preset theory about human social change. And it was a theory that you would see on display in any natural history museum in Paris, London, Washington, Chicago, elsewhere, um, you would learn about it in your geography classes. You would learn about it in, in what was already, by the beginning of the 20th century, being called sociology and anthropology classes. And the theory was essentially this, that civilized societies, represented primarily by Western Europe, the United States, and a handful of other countries around the world, were the end point of some linear path of social evolution. That um, it, they had the science, they had the technology, they had um, the most modern mindset imaginable. They represented progress. If you looked at societies that were different, from those, what you were doing was essentially uh, engaging in a bit of time travel. In looking at a so-called primitive society, you were gazing back at an earlier version of yourself, at an earlier version of your religion, of your language, of your mental map of the world. And museums, um, uh, natural history museums, geography classes, and so forth were there to teach you how 
Western Europeans, Americans, and other people, by the way, who were always classed as white in these models, happened to become so civilized, how you happen to get to that that stage. And if you were a progressive in this era, say at the beginning of the 20th century, what it meant to be a progressive was to believe that those uh, stations on this on this train toward us, toward progress, toward civilization, that those um, way stations could be accelerated if you had enough missionaries, enough education, enough um, uh, public hygiene programs. Um, but that essentially the story of human progress was uh, was a straight line leading from benighted to civilized. Your book is uh, about, as you write, the women and men who found themselves on the front lines, the greatest moral battle of our time, the struggle to prove that despite differences of skin color, gender, ability, or custom, humanity is one undivided thing. It is a prehistory of the seismic social changes of the last hundred years, from women's suffrage and the civil rights movement to the sexual revolution and marriage equality, as well as of the forces that push in the opposite direction toward chauvinism and bigotry. Are our dividing lines then still over what was discovered by Mead and others like her? Are our politics still in conflict over their discoveries when it comes to humanity being one undivided humanity? Well, you know, uh, I, I began this project, I have to say, in a kind of triumphalist moment and with a triumphalist kind of mindset. When I was first thinking about this project and beginning to do some of the research and writing in 2014-15, it felt like I was going to write a history of how we had all become so enlightened. <laughs> you know, uh, marriage equality had uh, just become uh, the, the the law of the land. We were um, we were in this moment where it looked like the United States was moving forward, um, at least to my naive um, uh, eyes at the at the time. And then, of course, 2016 happens. And what I realized in working on this book in this moment is that the battles that Boaz and Margaret Mead and, and other students of his, Ruth Benedict, Zora Neale Hurston, who is a Ph.D. student uh, uh, of Boaz's, the battles they were fighting are those that are perennial in the history of the United States. Uh, you know, issues of, of race and uh, of exclusion along different measures and categories um, are not dark chapters in the American story, as we sometimes say, but they're a constant thread in definitions of what American society is and who counts in American public life. You know, the, the issue, the idea that human beings are one thing, um, that they are not fundamentally divided into these obvious categories, or at least the obvious categories that uh, that were apparent to uh, people in Western Europe, the United States, um, a century ago. That idea runs through some of the great, world's great religions, through the great uh, ethical systems of the world. The difference uh, that Boaz and his students brought to this debate is that they saw the essential unity of human beings as being a matter of science, not a matter of ethics, morality, philosophy, but of science. And the way you demonstrate it scientifically is get, you know, get out of your house, go to some place that is very different 
from a place that's familiar to you and ask how people make sense of their lives in that place. Ask what it means to be an intelligent person in that place. Ask what it means to be a full adult in that place. Ask how the gods prefer to be named or what's good to eat or how you die properly or what it means to marry well. And Boaz said, you know, these are the unifying questions that encircle all of humanity, every society of which we have knowledge, has to answer these same basic questions. But we shouldn't believe that our answers to these questions, here and now, are the only obvious, timeless, forever ones, or for that matter, the only ones that produce human fulfillment. So did Boaz then kind of take, at least to some degree, take the politics out of science? Because you write that this is not a book about politics, ethics, or theology. It is not a lesson in tolerance. It is instead a story about science and scientists. That is not to say that the science or the scientists were not affected by politics, ethics, or theology, but were they any more or less guided by politics, ethics, or theology than their predecessors? Well, Boaz believed that that the politics, the morality, your ethical system should be based on what is scientifically demonstrable. Um, His great beef with the eugenicists, the racists, the organization of museums in his day um, wasn't just that they represented this um, divisive, hierarchical vision of global society, although they certainly did represent that. But his, his basic um, objection was that they were scientifically inaccurate. They were simply wrong. Um, there is no evidence for the belief that we are the end point of human social evolution. There is no evidence for the idea that having you know, one god is superior to having many gods, that that is somehow a, 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 a step forward in human social thinking. Um, and so what he wanted to do was to organize our understanding of other societies, other times, and other places such that we presented the coherent worldview that animated those times and places and then tried to understand those times, places, and people who inhabited them on their own terms. Now, the, the morality, the politics that flows from that is is pretty obvious. You know, if you can't set yourself up as always and forever the best, always and forever the boss, always and forever the the natural terminus of human social change, then you ought to be, you know, a little bit more skeptical about theories that claim that or basing your immigration policy on theories that claim that, basing your political system on excluding a set of people that you believe should be excluded from public life or the electoral system, you, you, you name it, or you know, forever condemning one gender category to a lesser station than everyone else because it's supposedly um, uh, uh, innate or unique to that, to that gender category. Boaz said, you know, these things are are immoral because they're wrong. (laughs) They're scientifically wrong. And better education, he believed, um, would, would change that. 
You write a little over a century ago, any educated person knew that the world worked in certain obvious ways. Humans were individuals, but each was also representative of a specific type, itself the summation of a distinct set of racial, national, and sexual characteristics. Each type was fated to be more or less intelligent, idle, rule-bound, or warlike. So to what extent were these beliefs then driven by, if not by science, were they driven by capitalism? Did, did we have these beliefs because this was the best way to create economic classes and differentiate labor, organizing society to best work within the parameters of earning profits and making money? Was, was that part of the reason? Well, uh, yes, in the sense that, you know, these ideas came to fruition in uh, globe-spanning imperial capitalist moments. And, and certainly it's true that these particular categorizations of uh, race, gender, sexuality, you name it, the hierarchy um, built into each of these ways of conceiving the world, of course they lasted because they served certain purposes. They served the purpose of um, justifying and maintaining a certain set of power relationships um, in all of these societies. But Boaz and, and his students understood that even that isn't unique, that in every society of which we have knowledge, people have a tendency um, to take their own ways of seeing the world, their own ways of categorizing the world and mental mapping of the world, and see those as natural, you know, as, as timeless and, and commonsensical. A really scientific mindset, or for Boaz and his students, an anthropological mindset, was for a moment to cast yourself out of that sense of naturalness from your own society um, and begin to see the world kind of from on high, from the position of the gods of the upper air, as Neil Hurston um, said, and begin then to understand your own condition, your own circumstances, as only one of a number of different ways of conceiving the world. You write that at the time, no sovereign country permitted women both to vote and to hold national office in the United States. Censuses divided society into clear and exclusive racial types, including white, Negro, Chinese, and American Indian. The 1890 census added the terms mulatto, quadroon, and octoroon to distinguish different shades of the colored. Your proper category was so obvious that it was not what you said it was, but what someone else, the census enumerator, usually a white man, said it was. Does does this increased categorization and specification reflect, at least in the eyes of those who saw themselves as forward-thinking at the time, the post-slavery enlightenment that they believed they were promoting? Did more categories, at least to them, mean they were being more respectful and understanding of differences and not what we would today might consider racist? Well, no. I mean, I think um, I think that if you if you if you just look at the history of the U.S. Census, for example, and this is why, by the way, it's very difficult. Um, to make statements about um, race in the United States over long periods of time based on the U.S. Census because the census categories change. And you have to make this sort of interpretive leap to say, well, the thing that was identified as category X in one census, but category Y in another census is really the same thing. We sort of mean the same, the same thing by it. But that's a great kind of interpretive, interpretive leap. When Boaz looked at the at the U.S. Census, or for that matter, any other way of categorizing human beings, he saw uh, within those categories a kind of genealogy of power, that um, people 
were categorized typically by the powerful in any given society. You know, those categories didn't sort of arise up organically and then find their ways into um, uh, government metrics and, 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 and ways of categorizing human beings. The, the, once the state, the modern state, got in the business of categorizing people in these, in these ways, it had an interest in maintaining those categories. It had an interest in using those categories um, for particular purposes. And that, in a way, I think for Boaz and his students, was the difference between um, uh, technological societies, um, what we might call modern societies, or at the time called modern societies, and other societies that they studied around the world. Um, all societies of which they had knowledge categorized people, right? That, that was seemed to be a human universal. The difference in the United States in the early 20th century was categorizing people in ways that seemed immutable, so you couldn't change it from time to time, that was inheritable in ways that were inheritable. So you passed down your race sort of magically to, um, to your children and in ways that circumscribe your social power for the entirety of, of your life, you know, race, gender, sexuality, and, and so forth. And finally, um, uh, Western Europe, United States, these other societies that, that – rooted these ways of seeing themselves in what they claim to be modern science. You know, um, the, uh, the, the greatest scientists and explorers and geographers and early anthropologists of, of Boaz's day believed deeply what they were doing in support of eugenics and support of what we now recognize as, as scientific racism. They believed that they were doing these things in, a, in themselves a scientific way. Boaz's great contribution was to turn all of that on its head and teach this to his students, that in fact science pointed in exactly the opposite direction toward the essential unity of human beings. We are speaking with award-winning writer Charles King. He is author of Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. Charles is a professor of international affairs and government at Georgetown University, where he has served as chair of both the Department of Government and the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign service, the world's premier school of global affairs. You can follow Charles on Twitter at CharlesKingDC and find out more about Charles at CharlesKingAuthor.com. You write about changes that have happened with increased options and identification on everything from the census to college applications and when it comes to making certain accommodations for the disabled are where they're available and accessible. You point out we usually narrate these changes as an expansion or a contraction of our moral universe. In the United States, the political left tends to trace a long necessary arc from the dismantling of racial authoritarianism in the era of Jim Crow through the Stonewall riots and the Americans with Disabilities Act toward the first major female candidate for U.S. president. The narrative is one of progress, of an ever greater fulfillment of the rights enshrined in the nation's founding documents. And often this arc is seen as inevitable and avoidable no matter how incremental it may be. In 1962, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave his speech to the New York State Civil War Centennial Commission where he said it's 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation is released and this promise is still unfulfilled very much as it is still today in many ways. Is progress viewed as inevitable and unavoidable by the left in the U.S. because the founding documents, the most significant documents defining the United States, promises us a progressivism that we still have yet to experience? 
Well, this is another theme I think that runs throughout my book is that, you know, there are two versions of America that are braided together from the very founding. I mean, a set of a set of founding documents that are written um, in a kind of universalizing Enlightenment era language, while at the same time containing other language and being written by uh, people who uh, claim to own other human beings um, and who saw this uh, categorization and hierarchy as being natural and God-given and and timeless. So. Um, those two uh, realities of the United States are, are braided together in the country's history. And from time to time, one or another of those threads, I think, comes um, closer, closer to the surface. We happen to be living in a moment where, I think, between the political left and the political right, we have a very clear distinction um, on so many of these fundamental issues. Um, you know, the people will use the word um, nationalism or nationalist to describe themselves um, and their view of the United States and are, are very clear that what they mean by that is privileging um, a particular either racial or, um, or genealogical or cultural strand in the United States over all, all others, and then um, you know, altering immigration law, altering the teaching of American history, altering the American narrative to fit that story. All of that would have been so uh, familiar to Boaz, Mead, Benedict, Hurston, and others um, whom I deal with in, in this book, because they were they saw themselves as battling exactly the same thing, battling this idea that people who happen to look, sound, seeing, or eat uh, exactly like you, that the sense of specialness of that, that in fact, there's nothing particularly special, they said, about the things that you happen to hold dear. They're just things that you happen to hold dear. But all you need to do is, you know, walk out your front door, experience the world, throw yourself into a place where you're not the boss, and then begin to create your theory of human society. And, you know, I have to say that that is why it is so critical that these people were in their own time outsiders. Boaz, a German Jewish immigrant to the United States who found himself on the wrong side of the First World War. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, the only African-American student at, um, at Barnard College when she was an undergraduate um, there, you know, had grown up in Jim Crow, Florida. Um, Mead and Benedict engaged in a loving, lifelong relationship that at the time they couldn't name. Um, and, you know, they themselves were outsiders in their own society and as a result were able to see um, its, uh, its pitfalls, foibles, weirdnesses, um, horrors all the more clearly. You write that all societies are predisposed to see their own traits as achievements and others as shortcomings. But the core message of the Boaz Circle was that in order to live intelligently in the world, we should view the lives of others through an empathetic lens. Why did it take so long to be empathetic? You would think when the study that we know as anthropology was first turned into some sort of curriculum, the whole thing would be centered around empathy so you can better understand other societies. After all, the definition of anthropology is the study of human societies and cultures and their development. But anthropology had been around since the 16th century. So why did it take until the mid, late 19th century, early 20th century for Boaz or anyone for that matter to apply empathy to anthropology? 
Well, I think I think there were um, uh, there were a few things that were coming together in this in, in this kind of moment. One was um, the invention of field work um, as a as a basic methodology. That is that you choose a place that is in some deep way unlike the places that you're familiar. And then you go there and you live for some extended period of time. You work on learning the language, you take field notes, um, you engage in the daily tasks of people. So you work at the kind of work that they, um, that they do and try, therefore, to understand the, the society really from within. That was a revolutionary way of doing this kind of science that is, you know, only about a century or so old. That's very different from you know, being a missionary in a place where your idea is to bring what you believe to be the truth to a benighted people and thereby um, change them to become more like you. Um, it, it also happened uh, sort of in this kind of uh, intellectual milieu that the, uh, the the research universities were sort of professionalizing themselves. You know, the major journals were developing the idea that a professor would do research and have research students um, whom that pr- professor would sort of train up in the profession. That's only about a century or a century and a half uh, old um, a- as an idea. And finally, um, you know, the the core animating theory that Boaz and his students introduced to American anthropology was what they called cultural relativism, the basic disposition, that you have to begin your science with the idea that, um, that there's no linear path of development, you know, so-called primitive peoples are not trying just to become like so-called civilized um, peoples. And if you begin, you sort of have that as your worldview, then that enables this in, the, the growth of this incredible observational science um, in ways that I think the um, you know the, the 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 world had just not seen before. You write how um, for each of them in the Boaz circle, fame, if it ever arrived, was edged with infamy. Their careers became bywords for licentiousness and crudity, or for the batty idea that Americans might not have created the greatest country that has ever existed. They were dismissed from jobs, monitored by the FBI, and hounded in the press, all for making the simple suggestion that the only scientific way to study human societies was to treat them all as parts of one undivided humanity. What does it say about the United States to you when its National Law Enforcement Service is pursuing those who believe in equality as if they are criminals, as if demanding the unfulfilled promise of the Constitution is a criminal act? Well, I think I think Boaz and, and other students of his would say that um, the United States is therefore a country like many others. And in, in other words, that um, dangerous ideas that seem to undermine seem to undermine social stability or undermine political power are always going to be, you know, contested and battled against um, by states that have an interest in maintaining the power that those ideas undergird. So, you know, for Boaz, the, the, the tragedy in a way was that he was arguing for the essential unity of human beings, the nonsensicalness of um, scientific racism, the um, the the uh, crazy ideas of eugenics that were in place at the time. All of he was a very public, outspoken critic of uh, of, of each of these ideas. 
at precisely the time that they were all wrapping themselves into the institutions of government in his old homeland in Germany, right? So Boaz died in 1942. He died at the height of Nazi power in Germany when the ideas of race and eugenics and forced sterilization uh, were becoming um, the law of the land uh, and right at the beginning of what would, um, what would become the Holocaust. Um, but Boaz also understood that so many of those ideas that the Nazis were putting into power, into place in Germany, rested on um, an experience and a scientific foundation, and for that matter, a body of law that was already well in place in the United States. As a number of historians um, have written over the last several years, the Nazis were actively studying the American model uh, through the late 20s and into the 1930s, because you know at the time the United States had the most far-reaching system of racial classification and exclusion in the world. The Nazis had only to substitute the category Jewish for the category African American. The United States had forcibly sterilized more people than any country in the world by the time the Nazis uh, came to power, and that uh, a Supreme Court case had justified the forced sterilization of those deemed by the state to be quote unquote feeble-minded. So, you know, Boaz was able to see um, what, what a, a full-blown version of racial um, exclusion and, uh, and, and of state control of human beings looked like from the American example, and then to see in his old homeland what a version of those laws and practices would look like if they were taken to an unimaginable extreme. So did... <laughs> Did the success of the United States then show to the world, show to the Nazis, that they too can be successful only by being racist and sexist? Has the lesson learned been subjugate certain members of society, fight labor organizing, organizing even have slavery for nearly a century if necessary, that everything bad that the United States has done is what actually made it great? Its worst part in our mind's eye are its greatest strengths. Is, is, did, were we the template for the racism of the Nazis and others? Well, the Nazis drew their ideas about the world from a variety of, of different sources, of course. But, you know, the point you're just making, I think, is, is an excellent one. Um, but it, it, it's the one that is, um, you know, you, you don't have to believe you or me on this. You just read Adolf Hitler, because in Mein Kampf, he says quite explicitly that no country in the world really gets race and immigration, um, social hygiene right. But the country that comes closest is the United States. Um, uh, Hitler had uh, had read, um, in fact, had in his personal library, which, by the way, is um, many of the volumes of which are now held in the Library of Congress, and you can go and look at them. Uh, held in his library German translations of you know, many of the great eugenicists and racial theorists uh, in the United States uh, of the day. One of the most important of those, a volume from 1916 by a guy named Madison Grant called The Passing of the Great Race, friend of Teddy Roosevelt, founder of the Bronx Zoo, great environmentalist and, and at, at the time progressive voice. Um, Hitler called My Bible because Grant gave this sort of racialized treatment of uh, of American uh, history and of, of world history. So, um, you know, this is not a radical idea by any stretch of the imagination. It's what Nazi theorists and leaders themselves said about some of the sources of their own behavior. You write the valuing of purity, an unsullied race, a chaste body, a nation that sprang fully formed from its ancestral soil should give way to the view validated by observation 
that mixing is the natural state of the world. Why is mixing the natural state of the world? And how has that been validated by observation? Why is mixing better? Well, um, I, I don't know that, um, that, it's, that, that it's better or that Boaz or his students would have said that it's sort of used words better or worse. They would say it is scientifically observable that um, there simply is no such thing as racial purity. There is simply no such thing as an unsullied, pure um, nation. Um, you know, it all, that these become obsessions of particular societies. In fact, lots of different religious traditions and so on have concepts of what purity means and what uh, pollution means. That's a very, that's, that seems to be a kind of human universal. But what counts as pure and polluted differs from time to time and differs from society to society, belief system to belief system. So the the idea of eugenicists in the early 20th century taking their conception of what purity meant and then um, building that into the structures of a of a state and then organizing an entire modern state around those ideas um, Boaz felt simply rested on ashes. It rested on air. You know, um, these ideas are not grounded in observation, and they end up producing horrifically immoral outcomes as a result. You write that culture, as Boaz and his students understood it, is the ultimate source of what we think constitutes common sense. It defines what is obvious or beyond question. It tells us how to raise a child, how to pick a leader, how to find good things to eat, how to marry well. Over time, these things change, sometimes slowly, sometimes rapidly. Does culture dictate our lives like some authoritarian ruler? Does culture have more impact on our lives even than government? Well, Boaz and his students use this word culture in, in, in some ways in a kind of maddening, um, with a kind of maddening imprecision, because they meant different things by it at, at different times. And I think most anthrop- anthropologists today would not use the word culture in the way they did. But what they were trying to open our minds to is the idea that we are all governed by a sense of the obvious, by, a, by, a, by, a, by our own kind of common sense, you know, that is literally common among a group of people in a, in a given geography, in a given environment. Um, and to live intelligently, to, to live as a fully aware human being, you have to imagine yourself in circumstances in which that common sense is strange to you, in which that common sense is no longer either common or sensical uh, at all. The um, the unit that holds that common sense, though, can be kind of it can be different. Um, you know, a neighborhood can have its own sense of obviousness or common sense. An extended family can have it. An office environment can have it. And what Boaz Mead, Benedict Hurston, and others were trying to get us to see is that. Um, our our folk wisdom about the world, our our explanations for the world, do derive from a prior set of assumptions about what is logical, natural, and obvious. And one of the goals of anthropology as a science, or of anthropology just as a way of life, is to try to begin to make yourself aware of those things. Um, it's easiest to do if you 
you know, as Meade did, get on a transcontinental uh, train and then get on two ships to get out to um, American Samoa, or as uh, as uh, Boaz did to go to Inuit communities on, on Baffin Island to throw yourself into a place that is very, very different geographically, conceptually, um, um, uh, in terms of cuisine, you name it, from the place that you're familiar with. The harder thing for all of us is to do that with people down the block or on another side of a, of a political uh, divide. Um, but that's, I think, what they were trying to get us to do, to be anthropologists in a way of our daily life. You write with the benefit of hindsight. It is easy to see racial science, eugenics, colonialism, and the excesses of nationalism for the misguided things they were and in their modern guises still are. The more difficult thing, even for committed cosmopolitans, is to recognize in oneself the errors that Boaz and his students were trying to correct. Now, I've tried to live my life by a motto for a very long time, and that is whenever you see something in others that you do not like, it's probably something that you do not like in yourself. Is that part <laughs> of the way that the uh, Boas Circle wanted the world to view itself? I think I think that's right. And, of course, uh, Boaz and Mead and others had uh, plenty of things that they were wrong about and that they just didn't get. I mean, you know, t- take Mead and Hurston, for example. You know, Margaret Mead, arguably one of the greatest public scientists of the 20th century, Hurston, one of the great figures in American literature, were still separated by this divide of uh, of race. And, you know, Mead just couldn't quite understand why Hurston was going off and writing novels. And in fact, I doubt she ever read any of, uh, of them. So, um, and, and Boaz, when it came to certain Native American populations, had these, these in, in practices that were, by our standards today, abhorrent. Um, so, you know, they themselves were in no sense perfect exemplars of the very theories that they were trying to get the rest of us um, to abide by. But at the core of this idea of cultural relativism, of beginning to be an anthropologist of, of your own life, is, I think, a fundamental moral code that, um, you know, as Boaz said, don't focus so much on the rules of right behavior, right? Every, when, when we're thinking about what the right thing to do is, we always kind of want a menu list. Um, but Boaz said, don't focus on the rules of appropriate behavior. Figure out what you think your best behavior is in your given society, your office, your neighborhood, your uh, town, your country, and then extend that behavior to the least likely recipient of your goodwill. Focus, in other words, on the people to whom you owe good behavior. Does your society say you only owe really good behavior to people who are part of the same racial category that you're in or in the same gender category or sexual category that you're you're in or only people who are citizens of your country and everybody else be damned um, focus on enlarging that circle to humanity itself and Boaz said you will have become not only more scientific in your way of seeing the world you'll have become more moral in your way of behaving in the world We have been speaking with award-winning writer Charles King, author of Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. Charles is the author of seven books, including his most recent prior to Gods of the Upper Air, which was titled Midnight at the Para Palace, which received the French Prix de Livre de Voyage. 
Charles is also author of Odessa, Genius and Death in a City of Dreams, which won a National Jewish Book Award. You can follow Charles on Twitter at Charles King DC, and you can find out more about Charles at charleskingauthor.com. One last question for you, Charles, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to oh, ask, no. you might hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> is going to hate your response. It's not, eh. It's not so bad. Uh, You write, just as the cure for a fatal disease might lie in an undiscovered plant in some remote jungle, so too the solution to social problems might be found in how other people in other places have worked out humanity's common challenges. And there is urgency in this work. As countries change and the world becomes ever more connected, the catalog of human solutions necessarily gets thinner and thinner. Is this coming together of humanity... Is it increasingly a concern due to climate change? Are those who do not consider the way others have confronted challenges and come up with solutions, are those who only look inwardly and not look at others for ideas and inspiration, are they... Is their society far less, their culture far less sustainable? Is nationalism like that inevitably going to die out as it doesn't seek help from others? Well, I, I would never say anything is in life is is inevitable, um, but I do think there's a, a great lesson in Gods of the Upper Air and the work of Boaz and his students for the present moment, and that is, you know, just as it's very easy for us to look back a century ago and look at scientific racism and eugenics and see these things for the, the horrors that they were, it's a, it's a useful experiment to ask in the present moment, what are the things that a century from now, our children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, will look back and say, how could they not have seen this? And I think climate change is obviously at the top of that list. Charles, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. It's, this is a fascinating book. Every year... Uh, we announced our favorite books that we have featured on our show, and I can tell you that in a week you will be on that list. This really is an amazing book. Oh, thank you book. so much. Charles King is author of Gods of the Upper Air, and everybody should go get this book. It really is fascinating. Thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. All right, take care, Charles. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? What are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? This week's winner gets a book we featured on the show last week, Eli Meyerhoff's Beyond Education, Radical Studying for Another World. If you want to hear our interview with Eli, just go to thisishell.com. I believe it's right there on the front page. Leave your response to our question from hell right now at our Facebook page, and you still will have a chance to win our prize. Go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and leave your answer right now. Alex, you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell. Uh, what are you majoring in to get a job in, quote unquote, the real world? David S. says, artificial intelligence, real intelligence is so last century. <laughs> Bradley R. says, grave digging, climate models predict a boom in the industry. <laughs> Andy E. says, psychophancy, psychophancy, it never goes out of style. Jeffrey D. Did you look it up to figure out what it is? It's like being a sycophant, I'd imagine. I'd imagine. It Uh, sounds like a cacophony of sycophants. uh, Jeffrey D. says, rectal osculation. Another thing I did not look up. (laughs) Uh, Anthony S. says, gift design. (laughs) What are you majoring in to get a job in, quote unquote, the real world? David M. says, comparative literature, the first choice of the (laughs) idealistic voluntary poor who are then no longer voluntarily poor, but merely broke for all eternity and then dirt broke always. Sarah A. says, self-promotion and side hustles, to which David M. says, tireless self-promotion? I teach a webinar on that. 
And finally, a couple responses via email. John P. says, the program is called Advanced Abject Avarice. And Daniel T. says, and I think you'll like this one, Chuck, incel studies. <laughs> and then uh, via DM on Twitter, uh, or uh, via DM on Instagram, Adeline says, MFA and using Tinder for free lunch with a minor in creative ways of dealing with crippling student loan debt-induced poverty. <laughs> I'm not too sure if that's a curriculum yet. Is that all you got? Uh, ah, yeah, yeah. My answer to this week's question from hell is, what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world? My answer is, the real world sucks. So let's see, the ones I liked were Daniel saying in cell studies, I did like that. Andy saying sycophancy, it never goes out of style, that is good. Uh, Bradley's grave digging, which is fantastic, and a double circle that one. Uh, let's see, uh, Kaylin saying sustainable denial. Yeah, that was a great that one. That is really, really good. All right, uh, let's see. What other ones did I really like from earlier? Uh, oh, Barky saying shooting guns, driving off-road, and finding water in the desert. David saying <laughs> squeegeology. These are not very happy answers. Boot licking from Stephen was good. Uh, Jason saying that he was going to major in failure. <laughs> Just really, really good. But yeah, let's give... Uh, the prize to let's give Eli Meyerhoff's book Beyond Education Radical Studying for Another World to the best answer for this week's question from hell what are you majoring in to get a job in the real world that goes to Kaylin saying sustainable denialism Kaylin congratulations you won Eli Meyerhoff's book Beyond Education Radical Studying for Another World send us your mailing address by messaging us through our Facebook page facebook.com slash thisishellradio and we will get your prize out to you as soon as possible. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy globby, gory rotten history on December 4th, 1969 50 years ago this Wednesday, Chicago police conducted a pre-dawn raid at the home of Fred Hampton, who at 21 was chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and deputy chairman of its national organization. And if you've heard our interviews with Flint Taylor, who was one of the attorneys who represented Fred's family, you know the story. And if you don't, you can hear it in full by going to thisishell.com and searching on Flint Taylor or one of his colleagues, Jeffrey Haas, has a new book out about the assassination of Fred Hampton. Go look up Jeffrey Haas, H-A-A-S. Fred Hampton had been targeted by the illegal covert FBI program known as COINTELPRO, which aimed to eliminate organized opposition to established power structures in the United States. And sadly, it largely succeeded. The FBI had planted spies among the black power movement, and one of them was William O'Neill, who had agreed to be an informant as part of a plea deal, which has to be the lousiest, worst plea deal ever. Hey, we'll let you go if you rat on all those people who are trying to improve black lives in the face of institutional discrimination, especially at the hands of police, the same police who are now going to turn you into a snitch. Deal? Acting as Hampton's bodyguard, the snitch O'Neill had secretly provided the feds with information, including the layout of Hampton's apartment on Chicago's west side, an apartment on the same block as a regular at Carrie's Lounge. And man, does he have creepy stories from his childhood when he played in the murder house of Fred Hampton. On the evening before the raid, as Hampton hosted a late-night dinner at the apartment for several overnight guests who were also members of the Black Panthers, O'Neill snuck a downer into Hampton's drink. So be a snitch and drug him, which all seems 
somewhat legal. Later at 4 a.m., police surrounded the place, busted down the door, fatally, fatally shot Mark Clark, who had been guarding the entrance with a shotgun, shooting their way into the apartment. They found Hampton deep in drugged sleep alongside his pregnant fiancée, Deborah Johnson. The police dragged Johnson out of the bedroom, then shot Hampton twice in the head. Several other people in the house were also shot, beaten, or otherwise wounded before being arrested. The police would later claim that Hampton and Clark had been killed in a shootout, but analysis would show that of the almost 100 shots fired during the raid, all but one were fired by police officers. The one exception had resulted from Clark dropping his gun when he was fatally shot, causing the gun to go off and put a hole in the ceiling. Even so, a court later cleared the police, ruling that Hampton and Clark had died in so-called justifiable homicide. Again, that is not the end of the story, and if you want to know what happened next, now the Chicago police were found responsible for the murder of Fred Hampton, go to thisishell.com and search on Flint Taylor, or go check out the new book by Jeffrey Haas, H-A-A-S. In Rotten History on December 7th, 1946, a date that will live in infamy 73 years ago this Saturday. No, this isn't about Pearl Harbor. The Weinkauf Hotel in downtown Atlanta, originally built in 1912, had been advertised as 100% fireproof thanks to its modern steel framework construction, and this is rotten history, so you know the place is going to burn to the ground. Apparently, that was why it had no automatic sprinklers or fire alarms, just one internal stairway and no external fire escape. May also explain why, though a bellboy noticed smoke in a fifth-floor hallway at 3.15 in the morning, the fire department was not called until the night manager had spent almost an hour on the phone calling each and every guest in their room to warn them of the smoke, of the problem. Just calling to let you know there's smoke in the building, but the hotel is fireproof, so no worries, go back to bed. Which makes you wonder... Why even call? There was a fire station just two blocks from the hotel, and once it was finally notified, firefighters began showing up in less than a minute. But by then, the single stairway in the hotel was already impassable with thick smoke, and several floors of the building were ablaze, partly due to rooms packed with combustible furniture, wallpaper, draperies, and other materials. If only all of that had been made of metal, too. Sure, it would have been the most uncomfortable hotel ever but you'd be safe. As the flames continued to spread, all firefighters were called in from throughout the city of Atlanta. Their ladders would only reach the seventh floor of the 15-story hotel, so terrified guests on the upper floors began jumping. A few lucky ones landed safely in the firefighters' nets. Others fell so hard that they tore the nets in half and slammed onto the pavement. Still others missed the nets entirely or crashed into each other as... Multiple people tried to land in the same net. A few firefighters on the ground were seriously injured by bodies landing on top of them. Of the more than 300 people in the hotel that night, 119 were killed and more than 100 injured, many with life-changing burns. Among the dead were the hotel's original owners, William and Grace Weinkoff, who lived in its top-floor penthouse. The Weinkoff disaster remains the most deadly hotel fire in U.S. history and the stupidest fireproof building ever, ever made. That's Rotten History. 
This is Hell Live from Hangover Country. Alex, who's on tomorrow's one-hour live streaming This Is Hell, beginning at 2 p.m. U.S. Central, daylight time here at thisishell.com. Uh, we got Ann Nelson to talk about her book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. I'm really excited for that one. And we're still waiting on Wednesday's guest. Yeah, we're still working on it. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, This Is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us Wednesday evening for This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. And don't forget our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party happens on Wednesday evening, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until somebody does something horribly humiliating. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Invite all your co-workers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office? Then invite the cool kids to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together from your own homes? Then invite all your co-workers to the annual This Is Hell holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last minute gift? We'll also have all of our This Is Hell merchandise available. That's Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Charles King for being on our show this week. I also want to thank Alex for producing this week's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for giving us the rotten history. This week's hangover cure is smoothies. And don't forget to check out Charles King's book, Gods of the Upper Air. You can find out more about Charles King at charleskingauthor.com. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. And that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Man, Damon. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh -huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.